0: The book of Judges. So remember after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad, to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole.
1: Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you're reading through the One Year Bible with us by now, you've you've moved like through much of the Old Testament. You just finished up Joshua and started Judges this week, and now you're in the part of the Old Testament that's like the most interesting to read because you're you're beyond the point of all the lovely long lists of names and territories and rules to follow and all that, and now you get. Uh, all of these stories of Israel's history. And so if you're, especially if you're a history nerd like me, this is like the most entertaining part of the Old Testament because for a very long time you're just going to get story after story of what happened after they came into the Promised Land. But you need to understand that um, people in ancient times writing history books did not approach the topic of history the way a modern historian would. So a modern historian is all about finding like the objective truths behind the stories of what's happened in the past. So if a, if a modern historian is writing a book of history, they do a ton of research, they look back for as many different sources as they can find, they try and find sources as close to the actual event as possible, They they look at different ones and see which ones... Disagree and where they might agree and then they kind of rank them by how accurate they are And they'll be really clear when they actually write their finished book that hey this part of the story We're pretty sure is very accurate this part where it's a little more iffy This maybe didn't happen at all over here and and they, they kind of have this really methodical scientific approach to it very factual uh, and, and very much interested in something that is objectively true. And so they identify their own biases and try and look past those. They try and identify the biases in like, the historical writers that they're working with to figure out how they might have skewed the story, um, all in the interest of getting beyond subjective truth and finding an objectively true thing about this event. Um, that is not at all how ancient historians approached history. An ancient historian writing a book of history is going to focus first and foremost on making their own people look as good as possible. That's what they want to do. And they also want to tell a really entertaining story. So ancient history books are full of hyperbole and metaphor and imagery because they're, one, they're trying to paint themselves in the best light possible. But they also want the story to really grip you and be full of drama. And, and so they, they're perfectly fine rearranging details and exaggerating numbers. So like the numbers that get listed in the Old Testament, for instance, are almost always blown way up. Uh, for instance, like in Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus, it will talk about there being 600,000, 800,000, over a million Israelites. But actually, by the time they come into the Promised Land, as Joshua is leading the invasion of the Promised Land, there's maybe twenty-five to 30,000 of them total. So you see, they, they blow up the numbers because it makes a better story. But the, the writers of biblical history books in particular, in addition to all of that, they are also trying to explain the theological significance of historical events. So they aren't just trying to tell you what happened. They want to explain why it happened why God allowed it to happen, what God was doing behind the scenes that we couldn't always see. And so again, the book of Joshua is a really interesting example. It ends, by the way, in in Joshua, it ends talking about how they have wiped out all the Canaanites, but then the very next book in Judges, you find out that's not true. They didn't wipe out all the Canaanites. They're still there. Because Joshua is not about so much recording the events as they actually happened as telling the story of Israel's God setting up his kingdom here on earth and showing that he has the will and the power to make it happen no matter who stands in his way. And so all these commands about what to do with the Canaanites are not about wiping people out there, about driving people out, and then not associating with them so that their religions don't influence the people of Israel, which turns out to be a wise precaution because they completely ignore that command and what happens is they associate with the Canaanites and then right in the beginning of Judges like Joshua dies and then within one generation they've started practicing the pagan religions of the Canaanites. So all these historical books, it's not so much that they don't reference real events as it is that they take real events and explain deeper meanings behind them that would not at first be evident just from a historical retelling. And then they make it a more interesting story along the way, all in the service of explaining what God was up to. And as you read through Judges, and then especially later as well in First in and Second Samuel and then First and Second Kings, they're going to use a word for the Canaanite gods that's spelled B-A-A-L. It's pronounced either Baal or Baal. No one knows which one's right, because it's a dead language, and no one's heard it pronounced by the people who came up with that word in 2,000 years. Most people pronounce it Baal, and and. That is not the name of a god. It's a title. It just means Lord. So it can refer to any of their gods, it can refer to their kings, but it's included like that in the Bible deliberately. Because the Hebrew word for God is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, and they just shorten it to Yahweh, the Lord. So they're setting up a deliberate contrast between this Lord and that, Lord, which one are you going to choose? So Judges starts off, and in the first three chapters, you know, first he gives you this overview of the book, and then you get um, the first couple of judges, Othniel and Ehud, who are um, really, they're fantastic judges. They do exactly what they're supposed to do. They don't make any mistakes. They are exactly what God intended the judges to be, and we know that because there are no good stories about them. They, get, they each get like a paragraph, and that's it. They get a handful of verses, and that's the whole story because they did nothing interesting because they did what they were supposed to do. And the story moves on. Um, each one becomes a judge, right? They, they, they rise up to overthrow the oppressors, and, and the, the way that the cycle in Judges will always go is the, the people of Israel turn to these pagan religions. God allows the Canaanites or the Midianites or the Philistines to oppress them for a certain amount of time, until they've learned the lesson, and then he raises up a judge who will overthrow the oppressors and then lead the people for a certain amount of time. And you'll notice as you read through it, the good judges get a long time, right? Forty years, 80 years, and 40 years again. And as the story goes on and the judges get worse and worse, (laughs) the time that they're allowed to rule gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So you have these two who do a really good job, and so there's nothing interesting to say about them at all. And then we're going to pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. It took them 20 years to cry to the Lord. They are a stubborn people. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. I'm going to stop there. It's significant that Deborah, a woman, is the prophet. If you've ever wondered why in the Methodist church we ordain women as pastors, this is a big part of it. And it's not just the United Methodist Church, but the free Methodists and the West Ends and every church associated with Methodism in one way or another will ordain women. And it's because there is biblical precedent. Whatever else happens, we know that at least once right here in the Bible, you've got a woman who is raised up by God directly to a role of spiritual leadership. And in this translation, which is the NIV, it's the same one that you've got if you took home one of the one-year Bibles. It says she's leading Israel, but other translations just come right out and say she is judging Israel which makes her the only judge in the book of Judges who is fulfilling that role before there's some kind of crisis she has to overcome. All the other judges have to go and save the people first, and then they become a judge. She's doing it already. We don't know why, it's just significant that she's the only one like that. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now it's worth pointing out, Barak is not a soldier, he's not a military leader, he's not a political figure. He is quite literally just some farmer who God singled out to do this job. So naturally, he's a little upset. So Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I'll go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. So he's understandably nervous about taking on this job because he's not a soldier. He's not a warrior, he's just a farmer who's been apparently called by God to come do this, and so he wants the prophet to go with him. It's like reassurance that he's doing what God says he's supposed to do, that God is going to fight with him. Um, but because he doesn't trust implicitly in God's word right off the bat, he, he loses some of the glory, right? The the commander of the enemy army is going to be delivered into someone else's hands. Someone else is going to strike the final blow and get the glory. So, skipping ahead into uh, Verse 11. What did he say? 14. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. (laughs) Then Deborah said to Barak, "'Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you?' So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword." and sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot barak pursued the chariots and army as far as harosheth hagoyim and all sisera's troops fell by the sword not a man was left so a couple things are significant here earlier it he talks about chariots with iron fittings so these stories are all taking place right as the bronze age is ending and the iron age is starting so some people have iron and some people don't and the thing is the israelites don't have iron These Canaanites do. And a bronze weapon cannot pierce iron armor, and bronze armor cannot stop an iron weapon. So if you can give iron-made equipment to your soldiers, you have a massive advantage in any battle because the people using bronze are going to have a really hard time standing up to your soldiers. The other thing is he's got chariots, and in the ancient world, a chariot is is like a super weapon. It's almost unstoppable, as long as the ground is flat. And Israel has this interesting kind of topography where it starts off at the sea, and it's really flat, and then it goes up really steeply, and then drops off to the Jordan River, and then comes back up again, and then it's flat again. And the Israelites have come into the hill country part of Israel, all these mountains and hills. It looks a lot like the Texas hill country, where there's like no flat ground anywhere. And so... What's going to happen from this point all the way up until King David, the Israelites don't have their own chariots. And so there's this constant stalemate between them and the Canaanites and the Philistines around them, because every time those other people come into the hill country to try and fight Israel, they lose because they can't use their chariots in the hills. And every time the Israelites come out of the hills to try and fight them on their own turf, they lose because now they're on flat ground and the chariots quite literally run over them. So you've got these stories where it talks about them being delivered into the hands of these people who live on that flat ground and rely on their chariots, and it is meant to be a sign that God let them do it, because if they came into the hills and beat you anyway, uh, you really messed up. But in, in this particular story, the fact that the Israelites were able to go down from the hills into flat ground, chase them into their own city, and beat them, all using bronze weapons while they had iron, it is, it is a massive underdog victory. They had no business winning this fight. And that's the point. They won a battle they should never have won. By any worldly standards, they should have been annihilated in that fight. And they weren't. They cannot doubt that God was on their side in that battle. Can't do it. There is no way they win unless God is fighting for them. So they win the battle. And then Deborah has this song she sings. It's this real long poem in chapter 5. And it's kind of deliberately set up to mirror the the song of Moses way back in Exodus after they've crossed the Red Sea. Uh, So, and it ends just with this one line in verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then the land had peace for 40 years. So she rules over Israel for 40 years after this. And again, that, that long rule is a sign that she is a good judge. She did her job well. She was faithful. And she kept the people faithful, which is, of course, the, the real trick in all this. And so you find with, with her and the other two judges who preceded her that, that they have these long reigns of peace where they're able to keep the whole nation faithful to the Lord their God, they keep the people upholding the covenant. And so they get long stretches of peace. And then they die, and then people begin to fall off the wagon. So after Deborah comes Gideon, and we're going to pick this up in uh, chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So now now it's not the Canaanites who have oppressed them, it's the Midianites, and the Midianites are descendants of Abraham. They're supposed to be like Ishmael's descendants, so they are the other branch of the family tree that Israel came from. And the implication is that what they're doing to the Israelites now is far worse than anything they faced before. Before this, they would have had to pay tribute to these other kings and you know, maybe like paying heavy taxes, essentially. But what the Midianites are doing is they're coming in, they're taking their food, they're taking their water, they're destroying their farm equipment. They're making it impossible for the Israelites to continue living in the land. So he's hiding in a wine press, threshing the wheat so they can eat, in the hopes that if he's doing it there, no one will figure out what he's up to. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Which is an odd thing to say to a person who is in no way, shape, or form a warrior at all. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And I love how polite he is when he starts offering Right, Pardon me. If the Lord is with us, um, explain all of this that's happening. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. It's worth pointing out again that just like Barak, Gideon is not a soldier. He's not a leader. He is a a wheat farmer from an insignificant family in, in one of the most unimportant clans of the people of Israel. He's nobody. He has no business being the one who leads the armies of Israel in battle. And yes, by the way, this is the person who the Gideons who put the Bibles in hotel rooms named themselves after. And oddly enough, this story does not include one single hotel room. So I don't know where they got that from. But he's a, he's a really, to me, he's a very sympathetic figure because he, he, he is so just unconfident in what God is asking him to do. Uh, and he's going to keep asking for sign after sign. And, and I can remember when I when I got my call to ministry and I was you know, in college still, I I really, I kind of felt the same way. I'm like, I don't really know if this is something that I'm actually supposed to do. So I asked God for a sign where right? I was working, I'd just gotten a job as a summer intern at First Methodist downtown, and I you know, prayed to God and I said, okay, so Lord, I need a sign. If if they offer me a year-round job, then I'll take that as your sign to me that I'm supposed to do this. Now, that church had never in all of its history offered anybody a year-round youth intern job. and you know how hard it is for churches to do new things. <laughs> so I felt pretty confident <laughs> that I was home free. Until halfway through August, they offered me a year-round job, and I thought, he got me. Um, so Gideon is asking for signs, and, and the most famous one is, is in verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, and it was a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. (laughs) Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry, and all the ground was covered with dew. So I love that he has to do one more test. Let's just see. I feel like the wet fleece might have been enough for me. I like to think it would have been. Uh, But he asked for one more test. And this is not the first one. This is like the third time he has told God, okay, I need you to give me some kind of clear sign that proves that this is what you want me to do. One of the signs, by the way, involved protecting him after he tears down an altar to Baal, which, by the way, belongs to his own father, which kind of answers the question of why is the Lord allowing all this to happen? Um, Kind of bold of him to ask that question when his dad has an altar to the pagan god in their house. So he keeps asking for sign after sign after sign. And do you notice God does not get angry with him for it. God doesn't get frustrated with him. He just gives him the signs. There's no evidence whatsoever that God is annoyed even by the fact that Gideon is so unsure of himself that he keeps asking God to prove over and over again that this is what he's supposed to do. And I love that that is the God we serve, that he's perfectly happy to sit there and and give you the signs you're asking for to prove to you that you are doing exactly what you're supposed to do. In other words, our God's not an unreasonable God. He knows exactly that he is asking this this poor farmer from the middle of nowhere to go and lead an army in battle, which he's never done before. And obviously that guy's going to be nervous, and so what does he do? Okay, fine, I will give you every sign you need to prove that you're my guy. And this is part of why you see this transformation in Gideon from this very uh, non-confident, nervous guy in the beginning of the story To someone who, by the end of the story, is actually a very confident, proven leader. And the whole way God is willing to give him sign after sign after sign. So after the final sign with the fleece, we come into chapter seven and verse one. Early in the morning Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying, My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took them men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. Three hundred of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Now, just put yourself in Gideon's shoes for a bit. And you've finally been convinced to take the army and lead them in battle. And then God says, whoa, 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 whoa. You've got too many soldiers here. (laughs) Go ahead and send some home. (laughs) I I don't think that's how it works, God. I think, actually, you want as many as you can in any battle. I think No, 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 no. You just send the ones that are afraid of fighting home. Okay, and then he does that. And then God says, no, it's it's still too many. You need to send more home. And you have to wonder how much Gideon fought back against at that point. Like, what? Really, God? You want me to send even more people? You know how many left that last time. Like, you know we had to fight a battle still. Until finally, God's going to send him into battle with just three hundred men. But again, the point is that God is taking someone who is not a soldier, who is not a military leader, and He's going to put that guy in charge of just three hundred men, so that no one can doubt that what's about to happen is God's doing and no one else's. So in verse 19, Gideon and the hundred men with him, because they've divided into different groups, reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. With each man Held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the three hundred trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Bethshitah towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabath. The Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. So not only does he send this farmer into battle with three hundred men. They don't even actually use any weapons to win the battle. They stand there with torches blowing trumpets, and it scares the other guys enough that they run. Right. This is one of those stories that is so ridiculous, you think you couldn't actually make that up. Like no, one, no one would believe this if you just told them a story. So they do that, and they run, and it's after they're running that then, then now God allows other people to come and join the fight. Once it's clear that God has already won the battle, the other people come and join. And so once again, you have this incredible underdog victory that's won, and there can be no doubt in the minds of the people who were there that it was won by God's grace and not by their own abilities. And then Gideon's story ends on on kind of an odd note. So in chapter 8, verse 22, So the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Aphra, his hometown. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Gideon's story starts out really good. He responds to God's call. He does what's asked of him. He, he leads the people of Israel well. And then in the aftermath of the battle, when they come to him and ask him to, to be their king over him, because that's what they're asking to set him up as their king. He says, no, that's not how this is going to work. God is your king. And you think, oh, good, right? It's another good story. And then he goes and he builds an idol as the people worship it in his hometown. And that's the moment when the story of Judges pivots. And it's all downhill from there. And, and the, the text is actually kind of ambiguous as to how God is going to judge Gideon overall because what happens next is it says as he, as he rules over them as their judge they have peace for 40 years. He gets the same amount of time that Deborah got. But he made this idol and it's just it's this odd thing where it's like okay you had the two good judges now you've got the one okay judge. And then from there on out it's going to be bad. He allowed the temptation of something else to lure him away from the Lord he was supposed to worship. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. The story of Judges is ultimately a story about choosing which Lord you're going to serve and illustrating the effects of worshiping each one. When they worship the Lord they're supposed to worship, they have peace and they have prosperity. And And they don't need a king to rule over them. They're not paying taxes. They're just paying a tithe to the temple. They have peace. They have prosperity. And when they turn to worship the other lords, they get oppressed. They get conquered. Terrible things happen. And there's like a cumulative effect to each one. The the more they worship the Lord they're supposed to worship, the longer they have peace. But the more they worship the other Lord, the worse their lives get. And then the worse it gets the next time they do it. And then the worse it gets the next time they do it. Until by the end of the book of Judges, you're, you're left kind of horrified at how they're living their lives. At the things that they are doing to one another. So the book of Judges starts off good because you have these, these good or okay judges who at least are, are faithful enough to pull the people of Israel back from the brink, but the story pivots right here with Gideon. Because after this, after this, they succumb so hard to the temptation to worship the other lords that no one's going to pull them back from the brink for a long, long time. And it's going to get very dark very quick. So the book gives you this contrast You can choose to serve this Lord or that Lord, but choose wisely. Because what you cannot do is choose to have no Lord. One of them is ruling over you whether you choose them or not. And see, the mistake that we make in the modern world so often is that we think we can actually choose no Lord at all. And and even those of us who are faithful Christians often don't think of God as Lord, right? We think that Jesus is my friend. God is my heavenly Father. And these things are true. There's no doubt about that. But he's also Lord. We're actually supposed to submit ourselves to his leadership and his authority to turn our lives over to him. And the thing is, if you aren't doing that, you're still turning your life over to something. Something or someone is ruling over you. And if it's not Jesus, you have to wonder who it is. And the danger is, The more you do that, the worse it gets and the harder it gets to pull yourself back from the brink. And if there is a warning to be had in the book of Judges, it's that you can choose between the good Lord or the bad Lord. (laughs) You can choose one or the other. But someone is going to rule over you. Whether it's the love of Christ or the love of money or the love of power or the love of whatever else might seduce you away from God. Something is ruling over your life. Which Lord will you choose? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.